This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. We're thrilled today to be joined by Jacob Poster, Associate Director of Global Attitudes Research at the Pew Research Center here in Washington, D.C. He's here to speak to us about a major piece of work that Pew Research Center published on June 23rd, entitled, People in Advanced Economies Say Their Society is More Divided Than Before Pandemic. Now, this is a a very ambitious piece of work. It's rich in detail, covers a lot of ground, covers a lot of countries. Just prior to this podcast, my colleague, a senior fellow at CSIS, Catherine Bliss, conducted an hour-long videocast conversation with Jacob, and I encourage you to look at that also. It was a great conversation. So, Jacob, thank you so much for being with us, and congratulations on this work. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me here. So, what I'd like you to do is just summarize for us what you were trying to do and where, and what were the methods that you brought to the task. Before we start talking about findings, just give our listener a snapshot You and your team, and you had your hand in all aspects of this in terms of country selection, question selection, analyses, editing. What were you trying to do? Yeah, so we've been doing the Global Attitude Survey now for just over 20 years. And each year, usually in the spring, uh, we ask questions in a collection of countries across the world on various topics and issues that, that are reaching individuals within those countries. This past year, uh, we did this in 17 publics around the globe, particularly in Europe and Western Europe, especially North America, including the U.S. and Canada and East Asia. So Japan, South Korea, Australia, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, those types of places. And our our goal is to sort of bring the public into the, the dialogue, to have the voice of the public be part of the conversations that policymakers have on these important topics. And to do that, we have to sort of change our plans based on what's going on in the world. And of course, this past year, a lot of what people have been thinking about and talking about is the COVID-19 pandemic. So we decided to ask a bunch of questions that we had asked both in 2020 and now in 2021 on people's perceptions of the pandemic. Did it unite or divide their society? Are they happy with their government's response to the pandemic? What do they think about the U.S.'s response or China's response to the pandemic? And we wrapped those all up into a report that we put out a a couple months back. And the results of this survey are, are more than you see in just this part of the research. We also look at views of the economy, views of great power struggles. But for the most part, this survey, which was telephone surveys in these 17 publics, stands on its own as a piece of research that we like for people to talk about and discuss in places just like here. So before we get to the substance of what you discovered, tell us a bit 
on the method side, how do you deal across the span of these countries with a public that is increasingly lacking in trust and confidence across the board in institutions and is increasingly skeptical of science and is increasingly subject to lots of conspiratorial thinking, misinformation, disinformation, flat out falsehoods. So there's distrustful, skeptical and the like. How do you thread the needle? How do you get what you need and connect with the people you need to connect with effectively in that environment? How do you cope with that? Right. So for the most part, these are telephone surveys. So we call people in these countries. Uh, we can actually call them up to seven times until we get an answer. Um, and once we're on the phone with them, we ask them these questions. And, and as, you, as you said, some people are both hard to reach and some people might be not willing to talk to us even when we do get them on the phone. So that's why we try to use a methodology that employs these multiple callbacks. We try to get the youngest person in each, in each household that we call because we do have a harder time getting young people on the phone to talk with us for 20 to 25 minutes than we do older individuals. And that can be a bit of a problem. We also employ waiting. So survey waiting helps to smooth out some of those imbalances in terms of you know, who we select for the survey. So if we are missing certain demographics, we can give more weight to them. So usually, again, it's younger people, more rural people. Those are the people that tend to be weighted up in these surveys. But as you said, it is an increasing problem with distrust, especially in the United States, for example, where we might be missing some people from the sample. And in the U.S., we actually use an online methodology. Uh, we use the Pew Research Center's American Trends Panel, and we are currently in the process of, you know, based on the results of last year's election, we're actually looking for ways to make that more representative of the entire U.S. population. And that's an ongoing process. We always are striving for better. We're always striving for as close to the, to the national demographics as possible. But there are some barriers, as you said, to getting people on the phone or even online to talk with us about these issues. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about the alarm bells that went off during the 2020 election cycle here in the United States, where pollsters who felt like they were really embarrassed and burned in 16 were coming out of the 2020 cycle saying, oops, it was even worse. And thinking, my gosh, these are really smart people. They have refined their methodologies and they're still having trouble coping with this crazy environment in the United States. Yeah, and, and, and the factors were different. Uh, in 2016, a lot of it was due to not weighting education properly. It had a lot to do with state polls leading to an inaccurate perception where national polls were a little closer. This past cycle, it was a little different. The misses were comprehensive across the board. And we've done some work in APOR, which is the Public Opinion Association, have done some work in figuring out what that is. And a lot of it does come down to non-response to those who are unwilling to talk to pollsters, not answering the phone or, or, or doing online surveys. We're working on ways to adjust that. And we know, you know, election polling is not the end all be all for what we do. We obviously poll a lot more than that, but yeah. it's an important way where public opinion researchers can point to the legitimacy of the methods. So we want to be as good as we can in that, but it's still a work in progress. But our methods team, uh, Courtney Kennedy, especially, who's our, who's our director of methodology is working really hard to, to get that in place for the upcoming years. Well, thank you. Thank you. This report, I failed to mention just at the outset that the lead authors of this report are Kat Devlin, Moira Fagan, and Aidan Connaughton. That needs to be acknowledged. 
you were the steward of this whole process and the guy behind the curtain, they were the ones at the table doing the hard work. Tell us what are the headlines? We know one headline, people in advanced economies say their society is more divided than before pandemic. You went in deeper into this pandemic than the earlier. So this was taking a reading of opinion across these countries, these advanced economies, after this pandemic had torn its way and moved its way forward. And early on in the United States and elsewhere, I mean, in the March-April timeframe of 2020, there, there was a, quite a bit of consensus and optimism in America. It's a totally different picture today. So what, what are the headlines? Yeah, I, I think that last point is, is one of the main headlines. The fact that not only do people say their society is more divided now, it's the fact that they were pretty optimistic about how society would be because of the coronavirus pandemic very early on. There was sort of a sense that, you know, we can all do this together, that, you know, this will unite our societies, we'll sort of beat it. But in the end, what happened is that politics sort of took hold and the divisions that were already in place beforehand have sort of manifested themselves even more clearly now. And you see that a lot, you know, in terms of whether people thought restrictions on activity was was correct in their country, in that while there's a bit of a divide on whether people thought there should have been more restrictions or about the same amount of, of restrictions, there is a clear sense that those on the right, those on the ideological right, or those who support populist parties in Europe are more likely to say that there should have been fewer restrictions on activity. So this restrictions, you know, masking, this kind of aspect has really divided societies in a way that you couldn't necessarily see at the beginning of the pandemic, but in the end goes back to our priors on, on how societies are sort of fragmented in the current political realm, both in the U.S. and uh, everywhere else. So this pattern, what we've seen unfold here in the United States, a hardening of the divisions, populism, conservatism, libertarianism, a skepticism of government and science on one side getting more and more pronounced versus a, a greater enthusiasm for a public health approach and for masking vaccinations and the like. We've seen that replicated across multiple well, countries. In the U.S., it's, it's definitely bigger. The divisions are greater than in every other country that we surveyed within this survey. But it's more so that the divisions in society are less than they were in the past about religion or kind of like social aspects and, and have tended to become more political in nature. It's sort of the politicization of all aspects of life. And so what you see here is that these political attitudes manifest in the answers on whether there should have been fewer restrictions or not with those on the you know those on the on the left saying there should have been more restrictions and those on the right saying there should have been fewer restrictions so it's not necessarily whether someone's pro or against something it's just the fact that the the prism of politics has really kind of infiltrated many aspects of the of the questions on which we ask about around the world and to a greater extent in the United States but also in the UK and Australia in Germany, for example, these kinds of political divisions are more prominent than they were a couple years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why, but it's definitely something we're seeing in our data yeah. overall. So you're saying, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that across the board, the U.S. may be more extreme, and we'll get to that in a moment, but the politicization of the elements of the response to the pandemic, which are largely 
public health-based interventions, right? Masking, vaccinations, lockdowns, restrictions on movement. These things have become more and more politicized across many different countries as time has gone on. Yeah, and we only talked about restrictions, so it's not necessarily on vaccinations, which is another topic completely and something that we were pretty far into our field cycle before it had even started as a campaign. So it's something we'll probably turn to in our next year's survey. But even when it comes to like divisions in society or when it comes to sort of support for the economic system and whether the economic system will recover, you do see a lot of these um, uh, issues sort of being couched in the political orientations of the people that we ask about with people on the right just having a very different opinion, a very different worldview than those on the left in many of these countries on many of these topics. Yeah. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty astounding, actually. What were the other headlines in terms of generational divisions? Yeah, so on generational side, uh, younger people are actually more affected by the pandemic than older people in many of these countries. You mean um, emotionally and temperamentally? Whether it will have a great deal or a fair amount of effect on people's lives. So we didn't actually specify whether, you know, what exactly what parts of their lives would be affected by it. But we do know that younger people were more likely to say that their lives would be affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And we also asked a separate question this year on whether children will be better off in the future. And, and we asked this basically of all adults, but, you know, and it, they don't have to have kids to answer this question, but there's a lot of pessimism about the future generation, about whether, whether their children will have the same opportunities that they had. And, you know, that's sort of tied up into this uh, coronavirus issue. It was a separate report, but it's something that I think is really interesting to point out here that there is a, that again, what started potentially as being a pretty optimistic take in 2020 has just not manifested that way as we get, you know, further into 2021. And that's sort of a big headline grabbing thing to me, at least. Yeah. Now, what was surprising in this in these outcomes what did you not expect to see that emerged out of this i think the deterioration in in, in how people viewed their own countries handling the pandemic that fell in most countries we surveyed versus 2020 and 2021 so attitudes on how countries handled it have deteriorated over the past year, especially in, in East Asia. As you mentioned at the top, there's a sense that the country was doing really well. The countries were doing really well at the beginning of the pandemic, but that sense has shifted to a more negative view of, of how things are going. And the one exception there is the UK. That's tied a little to the field period of when we surveyed. Uh, we surveyed in the US in February. We surveyed in the other countries in March through April, May. And there, the UK had already sort of jumped ahead of many of the other countries in terms of their vaccination effort. And therefore, opinions on the pandemic were a lot more positive in the UK relative to the previous year than they were in the other countries. So I think that also speaks to how this is an ever-moving thing, that things change over time and we have to keep on tracking this. And it really does depend on when you ask these questions, when you survey, which is honestly a little outside of our control. It's hard to it's hard to do these large scale surveys. It takes months of prep work, of questionnaire design, of translation, of field work, of analysis. And sometimes public opinion can be a little flat footed in that way, but it's part of the nature of, of what we do. You know, that's another surprising thing that I think is, is worth sort of mentioning here. Well, you know, we have a project here at CSIS that Catherine and I are involved in. It's a high level panel on vaccine confidence and misinformation. And we do it jointly with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. 
with Heidi Larson, who heads the Vaccine Confidence Project there, focused on the United States. And one of the themes that Heidi has been sounding about the survey work that they have done globally, not unlike your own work, is the volatility of opinion in this period, that the swings that are happening. She's looking at, okay, what happens when there's an adverse effect reported for for AstraZeneca or for J&J, and does that boomerang into a collapse of opinion and support in Nigeria or somewhere else? And it's a very volatile opinion climate. Do you feel the same way in what you're looking at? I mean, I've always known just through the work that we do that public opinion is volatile in and of itself. It responds to real world actions. I mean, one of the clearest examples of that is on a completely different topic, but something that we do a lot of work on, and that's international image of the United States. And what we see is that there are massive shifts in opinion towards the U.S. and confidence in the U.S. president when there's a change in who the U.S. president is. And and so you do see those kinds of patterns emerging where conditions on the ground, whether it be economic conditions, whether it be health outcomes, whether it be political outcomes, do change people's opinions of of various things. And that's why you always have to establish trends. You know, the name of our project here is our, the Global Attitudes and Trends Project. And the reason we have trends in there is because without that baseline sense of what people think, it's very hard to judge what this means. So you have to keep on asking these questions year in and year out and to really get a sense of how things have changed and to really pinpoint what people are thinking and why they're thinking the way they are. But that's a why people think the way they are is a, a big, a big topic. And it, you know, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on demographics. It depends on news information, news sources. It depends on where they are in their lives, you know, how old they are. You know, there's a lot of factors that come into play why people have the opinions they do, but it just often depends on what we're asking about, where we're asking about. It's sort of hard to characterize in a a global way. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about the United States for a moment here. Are we an outlier in a way? Are we exceptional in the degree of the extreme degree of polarization? So in terms of polarization, yes. Uh, in, many, in many cases, the U.S. is more polarized than, than other nations on almost every political issue. <laughs> and so this is, this is not just, you know, uh, relate to the COVID-19 pandemic. It relates to um, climate change. It relates to views of terrorism, immigration, migration, those types of issues in the U.S. that have been politicized do make it so that the gaps on political orientation, when you compare Americans to other countries, does tend to be bigger. But that doesn't mean it's not, it's not apparent in other countries. You know, as I said earlier, there is that gap on restrictions where those who support populist parties in Europe or those who are on the right are much more likely to say that there should have been fewer restrictions. And that's something we see pretty clearly in our data. So there are political gaps in the rest of the world, but the U.S. is a bit of an outlier when it comes to how exceptional those divides are on a variety of topics, not just COVID-19. You know, the U.S. is also a little more negative in this survey than other countries were. Uh, the only other country that was more negative on the response of their own country was Japan. Japan was another kind of outlier on a lot of this data. Also, too, we asked a question about the confidence of, of the healthcare system. And uh, the Americans are actually the lowest, even though a majority say they are confident that their healthcare system could handle another pandemic of this nature. 
uh, that 55% is lower than any of the other publics that we surveyed in. So there are some areas where, yes, the U.S. is a bit of an outlier here. And a lot of that does speak to conditions on the ground. You know, the number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations over the past year in the U.S. have been relatively high com- compared with the other countries we surveyed. <laughs> yeah. Now, one question that pops out of this analysis is the more time goes on without this getting resolved, the more serious the implications on people's feelings. And since you've even done this work, we've seen hopes rise with the vaccine campaigns unfolding in the United States, Canada, slightly later, UK doing very aggressive campaign, EU stumbling in the early phases, but catching up, Japan slow, but campaigns in these wealthier Asian countries moving forward, hopes going up. Then we have the Delta variant coming forward, revelations around breakthrough infections, the possibility of further transmission, the questions around lasting immunity and what is this, and also seeing the astonishing gap in vaccine access between the wealthy versus low and middle income countries. So as time goes on, where we're seeing this is a long war, we're seeing as a very complicated and dangerous war. What would you predict, given what you've learned in this survey and previous work, what would you expect we're going to see as we, as you go back out in another six months, let's say? My expectations are always neutral because I never know what people are going to say, but I, I will I will say that we do expect change in the future because it always tends to happen. And it will depend on where the world is at the time in terms of these vaccine campaigns, in terms of the healthcare outcomes and hospitalizations, deaths, all those metrics that we track. We will know what people think when we ask them that question. But as you said, it is something that is probably going to be around for a while. And so the questions that we have already, I think, are good for tracking those changes over time. But we'll probably have to come up with new questions, maybe questions that are more pointed towards the vaccine effectiveness or questions that look more towards international community and how cooperation could have helped or hurt. We actually asked a question last year, which wasn't in this report, on whether cooperation with other countries, whether that would have prevented deaths or not. And generally, people said that cooperation would have. It wasn't overwhelming, but people tended to say that the international community and cooperation in the international community is a good thing. But I do not know if that will be the case next year. I do not know what those outcomes will look like. There's also the sense of, again, the survey, unfortunately, due to methodology, you know, the methodological limitations of the pandemic itself doesn't go into, you know, what South Africans, what Brazilians, what Indians think about these issues. And until we can sort of gauge their responses to the pandemic, it is an incomplete picture. I will I will admit that up front. And so once we can get start asking questions there, I think that also broadens the scope of what we can say and what this means to different people in different communities around the world. Well, it would be really interesting. I mean, just look at what's happened here in the United States in this last phase, right? We've become polarized into the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, and we've and we've been that's become an official designation. We've, we're seeing lots of evidence of patients running out with the hesitation and refusal. Uh, we're seeing much more fear and exhaustion expressed by people. People are exhausted by this and fearful and feeling like, hey, wait a second, 
I was expecting to hit this point here in the summer where I had a confidence and I relaxed and I moved in. Now that's been taken away. So, and we're not alone. We're not alone in that that whipsaw, that whiplash experience. Be very interesting to see how you plumb that in this next phase. Let's talk about Asia. You know, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia. These countries have systems in place. They've had historical experience with MERS, SARS, pandemic flu. They tended to build systems with a national consensus around them for pandemic preparedness. They were better prepared. They were faster. They were not divided as early on as, you know, as we have been with weak systems and no consensus and like. So people have held up that body of countries as more resilient and a better response. Does this work that you're, you're doing confirm that or begin to say over time, that distinction begins to erode. In the data that we gathered from March to May, there was definitely much more confidence in their national response to COVID-19 in Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, South Korea, compared even with some of the success stories in Europe, the UK, even Sweden, which is very positive on on their own country's response uh, to to COVID-19. So at the time, when we surveyed, there was pretty there was a lot of optimism. Now I know since then uh, there have been outbreaks in some of those countries, which might have changed things on the ground. And there was also a sense that even though there was positivity about you know the response to COVID nineteen, there were still worries that it was affecting them. There were still concerns that it would you know in the future it would make life harder. And then of course there's Japan, which among the countries we surveyed was one of the most pessimistic. It was the most pessimistic in terms of its current state of COVID-19 response in in our field period. It was more likely to say that there should have been more restrictions. Uh, We know there was from other polling that there was concern about holding the Olympics um, there and a lot of sort of negative pushback to having, you know, obviously this huge event uh, while people were concerned about getting vaccines and all those kinds of things. So there is and, and there's also another number here that we haven't really talked about. 77% in Japan said that, you know, failing to recover from the effects of coronavirus shows the weakness of their economic system. So there's economic pessimism, too, in Japan that's sort of within all these things. So while generally East Asia is a positive story in much of this data, it could have changed since then. And Japan is clearly an outlier there when it comes to public opinion. Thank you. I want to take just one minute to talk about Sweden because... Sweden's such an ex- exceptional case in the sense that, you know, under under Sterkstrom, you know, they went down a particular pathway that looked like it was somewhat laissez-faire, head for herd immunity, became extremely controversial within Sweden as their death rates skyrocketed. And there was an intervention by their prime minister who took control of policy and began giving all sorts of speeches. And there was a big backlash and what looked like a very unified country became a pretty divided one. Your data doesn't show that. Your data continues to show pretty high public support for the policies of the government. Yeah, I mean, Sweden is generally positive on a lot of things that we ask about. I, I, I will couch it in those terms. They tend to be more trusting. They tend to have more faith in government. They tend to be more 
positive on a lot of economic attitudes that we measure independently of coronavirus. So that's something to keep in mind that they're generally, and even when you look at like happiness scores, you know, well-being scores, Sweden scores very high on these numbers, as do most of the Nordic countries um, around the world. So it's important to, to remember that when we're talking about that. But even in Sweden, in 2020, only 36% said that the country would be more divided by the coronavirus pandemic. And that jumped to 53% in our last survey. So even in Sweden, there are divisions in terms of whether people think that the, the pandemic has divided society. And those and there's still divisions in terms of ideology. Those on the right are are less likely to say that there should have been restrictions. So those divisions still you know, are there, but Sweden overall, because it's such a positive, trustful kind of society, does have natural advantages when it comes to public opinion polling, despite what the actual policies might be there. It's a, it's an interesting, you know, fascinating place, which is why one of the reasons we try to survey it every year. Yeah, well, and it's such an outlier within the Nordic states for the very high rate of death and severe illness and the con- controversy that triggered internally and externally about the policies that they pursued and the course corrections that were imposed by the prime minister when things reached a certain break point. And you can also see that in just the overall like opinions on whether the country has handled it well, even though it's high, it is a little down from last year. So there is something there. But, you know, Sweden is Sweden is definitely an interesting country. I mean, when you look at any of these countries in isolation, there's always something interesting, which is so, you know, so great about talking with this data with people, you know, around the world is that they'll often zoom in on a particular country. And it it does change your perspective on the overall data when you see patterns within country versus overall. Um, You know, it's hard to sometimes differentiate that. Jacob, let's talk about WHO. It wasn't long ago that we had President Trump attacking WHO, accusing it of being an accomplice of the Chinese and being in the pocket of the Chinese and severing the relationship, attacking it in a very public way. Of course, those positions have been reversed under President Biden. But I was 56% of Americans have taken a positive view of the WHO. And the data was pretty surprising to me as far as the opinion level of support. Is that... Do you share that view? Were you surprised by that? Well, I've done a lot of work over the years on views towards multilateral organizations, uh, the UN, uh, WHO, NATO, those kinds of things. There's generally a lot of support within countries for these organizations. They tend to be very positively seen, even in the U.S., uh, in the U.S., there is obviously quite a large partisan divide with you know, Republicans being much less likely to support the actions of the U.N., the WHO, NATO than, than Democrats. So there's that divide in the U.S. that is a bit exceptional. But still, overall, people tend to support the WHO. And this past year, we also were able to ask in these same countries whether people supported the reentry of the U.S. into the WHO. And there's overwhelming support for that for that policy from the Biden administration, that that rejoining the WHO is a win in terms of public opinion for the U.S. around the world. But when you're looking at opinions towards the WHO in general, in almost all these countries, there's a lot of support for the WHO. The exceptions there are actually in Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. And a lot and that's of that all is about ta- China? That's all about China, yes. I mean, it's clear that attitudes towards China have deteriorated in many parts of the world. Um, they were already particularly low in South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan, but the actions of the WHO vis-a-vis China um, have made opinions of the WHO in those countries relatively low. And even the UN in general 
Uh, last year, we saw a big dip in UN favorability in Japan. And the reason was because of attitudes towards China and how the UN and the WHO are dealing with China separately. So in other words, WHO's rep reputation in the United States took a big hit in, the, in 2020, in the last year of the Trump administration, to such a degree that the leadership at WHO described this as the worst existential crisis they faced in, in, in their history. But the change of U.S. policy has been backed by overwhelming support within the American public. In other words, a big slingshot or a big, you know, a, bi a, big, a big return to support, whereas South Korea, Japan, it's been more enduring skepticism coming out of this period. Yeah. That's an interesting contrast. The U.S. has, you know, there's always going to be, especially on in international organizations, there's always going to be that partisan divide. But publics around the world really welcomed the reentry of the U.S. back into the WHO. They didn't like Trump's original policy of pulling out of international organizations, whether it be the Paris Climate Accord, whether it be the WHO. But, you know, that is not as much of an effect in, in East Asia, in Japan, in South Korea, where, you know, the big power there is China and, and actions of the international community towards China, especially in response to the coronavirus pandemic, is a much bigger issue than whether you, the United States is involved. I think that's a really interesting contrast, the, the way you set that up. It's really quite striking. And overall, I found the opinion towards WHO very encouraging. I mean, I think we need to renew and revitalize our multilateral institutions who've been frayed and, and weakened in this last period in the course of this pandemic that's become very conspicuous. And so seeing that there's popular support across the spectrum of countries for the WHO is very encouraging, I find. And I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised, but very, very happy to be surprised in that regard. Jacob, let's close with a discussion around what next. You guys are leading in this field. As you say, you've been doing these for years. What lies ahead? Well, so this, this survey that we conducted in the spring, we're still doing analysis for on various other topics, very important topics of views of climate change, views towards democracy, within country unity, and sort of multilateralism as a general concept. So we're going to be releasing some of those reports over the next couple months. Um, look to the PewResearch.org website if you're interested in the latest findings. But we're also starting to think about what we're going to ask about next year. Now, there's still a question of limitations where we can survey. Can we survey in some more of these emerging and developing nations? I think that's still an open question, as you said, given the path of the pandemic itself. Is it safe to survey in those places in terms of face-to-face -face interviewing? And I think that will also determine what we ask about in the, in the upcoming year. But certainly attitudes towards the coronavirus pandemic, whether it's united and divided society, views towards multilateralism, democracy, uh, views towards major powers, including the United States, China, and other kind of threats that people perceive around the world or something that we're going to ask about in the coming year. And, you know, as I said, this is a long process. We're going to start coming up with questions now. Hopefully we'll have data by our next year and we'll be able to talk to people like you again to sort of see how things have changed. And I never, I never presuppose what we're going to find because you never know. I mean, you know, we trust our methods. We trust our methodology in terms of how we ask questions, 
how we find people to interview. And once the data comes back, you know, one of my colleagues always says it's like Christmas morning because the new data is the most exciting thing for us. It's like the, you know, it's like opening a package. We don't know what's going to be in there. We have, we obviously have some sense of what we want to ask and what we want to probe, but you know, we see surprises all the time. And that's what makes uh, this kind of work so interesting to me and what I think it makes it so relevant to the world at large and sort of talking about public policy in general. One last thought. You could read this report and come away somewhat discouraged and sobered by by this, particularly when you're thinking that this is a long war and it ain't over and we've got some really big and dangerous challenges sitting in front of us. To step out, step out for a moment, tell us what gives you the greatest hope looking ahead. In my professional capacity, I'm not actually allowed opinions, but that's okay. Um, because <laughs> you can take off your hat, take off your hat and uh, just say, uh, okay, you're having a beer. Well, I, I think when you look at, when you look at public opinion data overall, you do see a kind of a, a sense that there is there is a tying of of positive views of the world and in-country issues tied to economic and overall wealth and happiness development. So as people in countries that we survey become richer, healthier, happier, there is a corresponding increase in social trust, in, in health outcomes, in what people say about their in their what, you know, whether there are deprivations or not, whether people, you know, have trouble finding food or, or paying for rent. So I, I do think overall there is, there is a sense that, you know, the future can be brighter as long as people work towards, towards those goals. And that when it comes to public opinion, attitudes are shaped by conditions on the ground. And if those conditions improve, there will be more of the positive things that we see. On the other hand, you know, not to bring people down, but if conditions on the ground are not improving, those kinds of improvements will not necessarily happen. And again, I don't, I don't do policy. I don't make policy prescriptions. But whatever the policies are that lead to those outcomes, those tend to boost public opinion the most. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. Congratulations to you and your colleagues, Kat, Moira, and Aiden, for this work. It's really quite important. We've only scratched the surface here in this conversation. We could come back for another six conversations. And we look forward to the further analysis that you've referenced here. So thank you for taking the time to be with us and share your thoughts. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 